The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business App. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Big uh, earnings again after the close. We got Meta, got Apple, uh, and we got Amazon. And the way we do it at Bloomberg Intelligence looking at Amazon, we got to recognize that this is a huge retailer, of course, global retailer. But it's also a huge technology company. It's really evolved and developed its technology over the last 10 years or so. So the way we do it is we get Poonam Goyle. She covers all the retailers for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, and we got Anurag Rana, who covers uh, all the tech for Bloomberg Intelligence. We bring them together and we roundtable them. And that's how we can really get a holistic view of what's happening at Amazon. Anurag, let's start with you here. What do you want to hear from Amazon tonight? What do you need to hear? What's the market need to hear about their cloud business? Well, the magic word tonight is cost optimization, that Ooh. they are not seeing any more of it, that customers have started to spend back. That is going to really be magic to my ears. Um, I, I think we heard some of that from Microsoft, but not entirely. I, I think that is, the, that is the direction, that is going to set the direction for cloud names for over the next 90 days. Um, can I ask the demo question? Yes. In real yeah. terms, what is cost optimization? Like, what does that actually mean if I'm reading through that, the call? So sorry about that. So, so th that just basically means companies or corporations are not cutting cost in their cloud consumptions that they have stabilized or started to spend back again. Mm, that is that. going to be the only thing that I care about. See, Anurag's whole career following technology, it's always a growth industry. They didn't never have down <laughs> years. It's just a question of how, how much, much growth. Totally. So the tech spending apparently over the last couple of years, the growth rate has slowed and that's got these tech analysts all anxious and so they want to see a reacceleration of that tech spending. That's my read. Uh, let's let's get to the important stuff. And you're talking about Amazon. That's like people buying stuff, and the box is showing up at my door. Um, Poonam, you cover the whole retail space. You've got the best view of this. How is retail spending out there, and and how is Amazon competing? Amazon's taking share, and retail spending overall is good, especially online. And when you shop online, Amazon is the clear winner there. So we're actually except good results for the fourth quarter. We know holiday was strong and Amazon likely took share there. So from an online standpoint, we think they'll do well and the results will be driven once again by gains in their third party, which is the sellers that sell on Amazon versus their own first party goods will be the reason that they outperform. To that point, Aren't we sort of, isn't Amazon kind of looking into a world where they might not be responsible for those third-party sales in terms of safety and quality, et cetera? And it, it, how dramatic could that be? That, that could have an impact. You know, right now, Amazon is not responsible. So if you're the seller and you're selling something on Amazon, it's not Amazon's responsibility to authenticate that good or even to maintain the control over that exchange of goods. But if that changes and Amazon is going to be accountable for that and seen as a distributor, as what we're hearing, um, then that could change things up and it could make Amazon institute more best practices and also be held liable, right? Because we know that there's a lot of stuff sold on Amazon that could be counterfeit. And 
until today, Amazon has no responsibility over that and doesn't need to. Hey, Anurag, give us a sense of just kind of the landscape of cloud computing. Uh, we got Microsoft, uh, Amazon, Google. Kind of, how does it play out, and how does how does Amazon position itself? Yeah, so you know, in the cloud infrastructure world, which is basically the the storage and the computing that you need to build any application, there are three big players. It is Amazon, the number one with the biggest market share. Microsoft has done a phenomenal job over the last ten years to catch up, and is the second biggest. So. You know, structurally, there are two big players, Amazon and Microsoft, and then Google's been catching up, and Google's a very viable contender to uh, both of them. What's really happening right now, at least in the last 12 months, is Amazon does not have an AI play as such. Now, that's really not true, but that's, that's the narrative in the street, that Microsoft has a close relationship with OpenAI. They're pretty much kind of, you know, are very close to OpenAI, and OpenAI's backend is everything Microsoft Azure. So OpenAI makes more money, Microsoft really you know, benefits from that, which is what we saw in their results a couple of days ago. For the case of Amazon and uh, Google, they really need to talk about what is going to be their strategy. And their strategy actually is very simple. Um, enterprises or corporations, when they're gonna go out and build those AI models, they're gonna use one of those three you know, cloud vendors. Um, I think it's going to, for them, it's taking a little bit longer, maybe, you know, a year down the road, six months down the road. And that's what everybody says that, oh, Microsoft is ahead and Amazon. I think in the long run, all three will make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a matter of when it starts. I mean, to your point, Paul, though, Azure cloud service sales gained 30%. Hello, what company wouldn't want that yes. growth rate? But it was like just 1% more than what the street expected. But those were some <laughs> big numbers. Um, I got to say, we got to turn to Apple because we just have a few minutes left. But I'm having a really hard time getting excited about Apple's quarter today. They're going to make a lot of money. They're going to sell a lot of stuff. And then what? Um, Anurag, what are you expecting? This is probably the the weakest I've gone in in terms of sentiments uh, in you know for Apple. There isn't much going in their favor at this point. You know, regulations, weakness in China, them losing share in China. Like it's just probably the lowest expectations I've seen going into a quarter for Apple. I'm not expecting any you know major positive surprises, but guess what? Sometimes that's when fun happens is when you go in <laughs> with true. with low expectations. Hey, Poonam, as we step back here, what other, I mean, how does Walmart compete against Amazon? Because it seems like the Walmart.com, they've done a really, really good job competing from my perspective, just as, as a user. What, what do you think? I think Walmart has made some strides on its dot-com presence. But, you know, when you think about Walmart and you think about Amazon, and I think they can both grow share together. It's not that Amazon loses if Walmart wins. But remember that Walmart's business, it's still 50% grocery. And grocery is a low single-digit business for yep. Amazon. So they're almost two companies that may seem alike, but they're very different in their product offerings. We think both can grow their online business. Both can drive double-digit gains as the online vertical just grows as a channel, um, irrespectively of what happens to brick and mortars. I love that we spent one question on Apple, and then we're like, yeah, okay, let's go back to Amazon, well, which I think says a lot <laughs> about the, to Anurag's well, point. I think, I think from what I understand, talking to Anurag and other tech folks, it's all China. You, if you, yeah, yeah. you get comfortable in China, you can get comfortable in Apple. If not, then not, you know. Yeah, and they're just like the sentiments just kind of meh at the end of the day. So, Poonam, when we go to Amazon, though, for a second, um, what is going to be the catalyst growth driver, though, on the retail side? Or is it all just going to be focused on that cloud? 
I think a lot is focused on cloud, but keep in mind the retail side brings advertising revenue. Yeah. So the ad uh, revenue yeah, growth is going to be a key focus area for Amazon, not just today, but also for the foreseeable future as that drives very high profit margins, close to 50%. So we think you want to see retail grow, right? Because as you get those prime members shopping on Amazon, you also get more eyeballs and you get more ad revenue. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this the digital advertising business for a long time was, in effect, the duopoly, uh, Google and Facebook, and then Amazon came on. And in a matter of, I don't know, what's it been, uh, Puna, five, six years, they've become a huge advertising platform. They are. They control about 10% of digital media advertising, and they're wow. at a run rate of $50 billion, and we think they can get to $100 billion over the next several years. Yeah, Whoa. and that's literally from, from nowhere, standing start. So um, it's really amazing. All right, guys, thank you very much. We appreciate getting both of you together. Poonam Goyal, Anurag Rana, both for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, covering both the retail side of that story. And as Poonam says, uh, that's important for a lot of reasons, including the fact that it's driving this advertising business for them. And then, of course, on the technical side, the cloud has really been the profit story for the company. Uh, and really probably the multiple story for the company. You get a kind of a high multiple on that cloud stuff. Right. I mean, hence the whole, if you only beat by one percentage point right. for growth, you're kind of disappointed in right. terms of the valuation. I wonder if you ever, I mean, just put on my banker hat on, what's, I wonder if anybody has the, you know, the gumption to go to Amazon and say, hey, you want to split up these companies, spin out the cloud business? I mean, that would be kind of cool. What would be the downside to that? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, the kind of giving up a little bit of ownership of it, you know, giving it some more ownership. I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I think it'd be kind of cool because um, I would think that would get a monster, monster, mm -hmm. monster. Oh, my gosh, multiple. yeah. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Tomorrow, and, uh, another jobs day. They just kind of sneak up on you every once in a while. So we've got non-farm payrolls. The consensus is for an addition of 185,000 jobs. Pretty solid number. That would be down from uh, last month of 216,000 jobs. But that's certainly something that the Federal Reserve is looking at. So let's get a little bit of a preview there. Julia Pollack joins us. She's the chief economist for ZipRecruiter, joining us uh, on Zoom from Los Angeles. Julia, thanks so much for joining us here. What are you looking for in the jobs data tomorrow? What do you think the Fed's looking for in a jobs data tomorrow? So I'm going to uh, predict that job growth will continue to slow. Uh, the three month average right now is 165,000 and I think we could even fall below that. So I think the risk is very much to the downside. Uh, job growth has been slowing and narrowing over the course of the year and I think it will continue to do so as long as rates hold steady at these restrictive levels. Um, mm -hmm. I, sorry. Well, I was gonna yeah, say, Yes. And also, I feel like headline after headline, it's like job cuts, job cuts, job cuts. So from our perspective sitting here, it can feel super dramatic. Um, is it or are we just like normalizing at this point? So, you know, it's always difficult to figure out what the trend in layoffs is in January. And that's because December and January are layoff season. 20 percent of all layoffs in the year take place in just those two months. So, you know, it's kind of like predicting that the temperature is just going to get colder and colder and worse and worse and worse when you're sitting in January and you're sort of 
flossing, <laughs> you know, September through January temperatures. We don't know, right? They could get worse. Um, so far, layoff numbers, as tracked by Challenger Gray, are lower this January than they were last January. We know we had this huge spike in layoffs in December and January last year, but also that over the course of the whole year, according to Bureau of Labor Statistics JOLTS data, layoffs were unusually low. The layoff rate lately has been 1.0% in uh, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, it averaged 1.2%. So we basically are having 20% fewer layoffs and firings now than is normal, even though it feels as though they're all the news. So I, I see in your notes, Julia, 92% of job gains over the past six months through December were just three sectors healthcare the government right. and leisure and hospitality i did not know that that doesn't sound like a healthy statistic for the labor market no it is actually quite unusual and the previous month it was even worse it was 98 percent. so last month job growth broadened a little bit uh but that is the next big thing i'm going to be looking at not the uh sort of magnitude of job gains but their breadth across the economy if they're only happening in these non-cyclical sectors they're basically fueled by the government uh, healthcare and government um, that isn't a good sign for the economy at all. Uh, it, it, it would give us reason to understand why uh, consumers, why job seekers, why workers are still feeling a little glum about uh, the situation, even though we have these huge GDP numbers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, it's because the happiness is not sort of spread equally around. Well, here's a dumb question. Why is that a bad sign if it's mostly leisure, hospitality, government, uh, and healthcare? Well, because lots of people aren't working in those industries, right? There are lots of us who are in tech or in law or in consulting or finance. Um, it's, you know, there's massive demand for nurses. Uh, healthcare is just hiring, hiring, hiring. Uh, leverage in that industry shifted to workers during the pandemic, and they have not lost that leverage increase. Uh, but in the, the rest of the economy, it's different. It's not so easy for everyone to kind of move into healthcare, right? So uh, when certain industries contract and the number of jobs available just keeps falling. Um, and it's not a matter of uh, one company doing layoffs so you can just go to the next one, but the entire sector contracting. Mm. Take journalism, for example, the media, the press. Well, you can end up having people who who are unemployed for quite a long time because it's very hard for them to make a shift. Hey, Julie, I'm looking at the, uh, the forecast uh, for some of tomorrow's data on the Bloomberg terminal. Average mm -hmm. hourly earnings year over year, 4.1% uh, is the projection, kind of flat with last period. That seems pretty good to me. What's the wage environment from your perspective? That is pretty good, but most of the data does show a steady slowing in wage growth. We had ECI data yesterday that showed we've had three straight quarters of uh, declines in wage growth. Um, you know, the annualized rate of wage growth for the quarter was just 3.7%, which is actually very close to what the Fed would expect uh, is consistent with 2% inflation. So I think we could actually see a slightly lower number, uh, but you know we'll see. And, and it's also, I think, important not just to fixate on these year-over-year -year numbers, right? Wage growth was very, very fast last year and the year before um, in nominal terms, right? Inflation was, was higher for 25 months. So actually, if you're looking at real earnings, uh, wages have some catching up to do to make up for the 9% inflation we yep. saw. Are we seeing labor hoarding, Julia? You mentioned how, I mean, I know it's seasonal, but the amount of layoffs we normally see is below the norm. Are, yeah, are we seeing hoarding? 
So there are several anecdotes in the Fed Beige book of companies saying, you know, yeah, business activity is, um, we have more employees on hand than needed given current levels of business activity, but we're keeping them because we expect conditions to improve in the back half of the year. I think that's sort of code speed for we're expecting the Fed to cut rates and investment to boom again and people to build, you know, buy houses and buy refrigerators and furniture. And so we're holding on to these employees because we were burned once before and we know how hard it is to get them back. Um, so yes, I do think that that is occurring in, in many industries. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. I can't imagine if I owned a business hoarding employees. Like, who can afford that? Well, I think that's kind of the point. And you have to wonder, too, like how long until they are forced to? Either does the data deteriorate that much or do they need to see the Fed hikes get pushed out, yep. uh, cuts get pushed out even more? Like what's the tipping point for that one? I don't I know. And, you know, Julie, I have, a, I have another thing that I just can't get my head around. What's this this jolts thing? It's still like nine million job openings. Where is everybody? Yeah, so Why are people working? That number is usually five or six million. And now we're at nine. It was as high as 12 million. Are people just hanging around Starbucks all day? So I don't put that much stock in that number. There is a clear upward time trend in the job opening series that is not evident in any other labor market data. Um, so job openings have kind of become decoupled from hires, from quits, from the things that they typically are correlated with. And I think if you remove that time trend, job openings are actually all the way back to normal. Um, our data you know, is on online job postings. And by our count of, sort of deduplicated online job postings, we are all the way back to pre-pandemic levels, to 2019 levels. And to that point, Paul, you know, okay. when, when I was in Florence, Italy, you know, yeah, with the, with dropping the, the wine and the pasta, yes, of course. Um, <laughs> I was talking to a lot of these guys who are doing, you know, innovative stuff within energy technology yep. and stuff like that. And they're trying to build all these new facilities. They're the ones who are going to be using a lot of that IRA money. They're like, we do not have the workforce. So yep. at all, like yep. there's no special training program. This is all new technology. They just don't have the people and they're not going to get them anytime soon. And I do wonder how that winds up distorting. I agree. That's a, good a lot of the yep. data, too. Yep. So, right, and so we do have very un low, very low unemployment, right? Last year was like the sixth best year on record since 1940 when it comes to the unemployment rate after the early 50s and the late 60s. Um, so very, very low unemployment, 24 months of sub 4% unemployment. So it is still hard for employers to find workers. And so I, I don't think it's that um, unrealistic or, or unreasonable to, to hang on to the workers you've got for dear life. Where are we in terms of productivity here? I, I was amazed when the pandemic hit and shut down and lockdowns and all that kind of stuff that people were still able to do their jobs pretty much from remotely. And it's just kind of amazed me. Where are we in the productivity discussion? So, you know, the productivity data series is a weird one. It shot up during the pandemic when uh, there were massive layoffs and those layoffs are typically concentrated among uh, employees who are not, you know, day to day involved in generating widgets. Um, then measured productivity tumbled as all of those support staff, HR people, the marketing people came back. Then it started ticking up from a point above the pre-pandemic trend. And so it does look as though the investments that happened during the pandemic 
in a zero interest rate environment uh, when everyone was shifting to the you know to computers to doing everything on the internet to digitalizing every industry um, those investments have actually improved productivity and we're seeing you know, great productivity numbers uh, continue now really I feel more productive don't I look more productive? Well, I mean, you are literally <laughs> standing in this position for five hours. Exactly. So, so got, just from that alone, yes, the go. answer is, is yes. All right, Julia, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Uh, Julia Pollack, she joins us from ZipRecruiter. She is the chief economist. Um, I do think, though, that longer term, the, the, the labor shortage in different industries yep. is going to be really hard. And I don't know what the longer term fix that is. You have to convince well, kids to go to trade school. That's exactly what I was going to say. Create the incentives for the folks to go to trade schools because, and we hear it, and we heard it just recently from George Ferguson talking about um, his industry, the aerospace industry. One of the reasons Boeing and the FAA are having a hard time kind of getting their act together is they lost a lot of workers in the pandemic. And these aren't just people that hammer nails. These are people that are do pretty specialized um, you know, jobs there. And you got to get them back. You got to retrain them. It's taking harder. Um, I didn't think that would still be an issue. Yeah. But it is. And we're here from industry after industry, your industry in the energy space. Um, you have so. to wonder, like, at some point, does that wind up becoming longer term inflationary? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of folks are saying forego college, forego the uh, debt that's associated with the college, go to a trade school, a lot of which can be subsidized and yes. supported. Uh, man, you can make a good living in a lot of these industries out there. So um, so we'll have to see how that plays out. But good, we'll see the jobs numbers tomorrow. We'll get a lot more info on the United States labor market. And of course, Bloomberg will have full coverage on that because that's what we do. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Nice and manufacturing data came in better than expected. Let's break it down with Tim Fury. He's at the conference board. He knows all this stuff. Tim, uh, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, again, 49.1, still in contraction mode, but a, a big improvement there from consensus and from last period. Yeah, well, I, I, wow. Hi, Paul. Hi, Alex. So, yeah, 49.1 was uh, a surprise. I mean, we're headed in this direction for sure. Last time we had a conversation, I, I've been saying I thought we'd hit 50 by March. Uh, this got there a little bit sooner. But, you know, I look at it from three standpoints, inputs, outputs, and demand. You know, the input story is it just gets better. They're starting to stiffen up. We're investing in working in working capital represented by inventories, not contracting as much. On the output side, production is stable in January compared to December to 50.4. That's really good. That's no sign of concern or, or dramatic growth even at this point. Employment side, we continue to take people out of the organizations, which we had said that we would starting back in May and it continues. So the real story here is on the demand at 52.5 on new orders. That that kind of came out of almost nowhere. But mm -hmm. look at that in context with the customer inventory number. So we're saying the customer inventories are way too low now. And at the same time, we're saying that the new order level, level is stepping up. So I think yeah. those are absolutely related. The, the, you know, our panelist companies, customers have gone back to them and they've probably revised their forecasts mm -hmm. for 2024, and now things are underway. So Tim, hey, it's great to see you, by the way. Uh, I have to say, this is a great set of data here, super surprising on different levels. When you talk about the inventory, do you think that the orders are being used for end demand, or do you think the orders will be replenishing that inventory? And what does that inventory wind up looking like versus, say, before COVID? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's intermediate products and raw material. So, uh, you know, we've been really tight, tight, tight with investments in this area. 
we spent, uh, well, we, we spent what, 11 months contracting our manufacturing inventory. That really is reflected with the fact that we've been managing cash really close in 2023. We closed the year, we closed the end of the year, very lean. Nobody was really carrying any inventory that they, that they didn't have to. They cleaned the place out. So now there's a bit of a restocking going on. I think it's more about intermediate stuff, Alex, and, and you know, mill run steel and aluminum uh, truckloads and things like that. But I think it's a positive sign that companies are willing to reinvest again in working capital. I think that inventory number will get over 50 by the time we hit March. I'm still on that March thing. I think March is like the magic number. But I've been saying since, since uh, August, September that we were in the trough, but this could be a sign that we're finally starting to come out. And I, and I think it's about, you know, the, the demand had to come back. There's some signs of demand here. We do have some headwinds in February. February should have a lot more new orders coming in. So we're going to need that to maintain that 52, 53 new order level. But, you know, everything kind of aligns. The, the other thing that's come up this morning is prices. You know, prices are growing. So, you know, we have the energy markets offsetting growth in the commodity markets. Those commodity markets are probably just going to get stronger. Plastics, aluminum, and steel. Prices are not going to probably come down there. Lead times have been really stubborn. So, you know, I think in the energy markets, eventually will probably give some, probably give way in the summertime as, as demand increases for, you know, for summer travel. But I, I don't see prices really going down anymore and I don't see them going up much. You know, it's, it's going to be, I think we're going to see some slow demand kind of creep in here. It's going to be like a slow takeoff of a cargo plane rather than a fighter jet, <laughs> but we're going to be kind of, we're starting to grow again nonetheless. And I think, I feel even more confident that March is the right month to see that really show up. Hey, Tim, what, what are the companies that, that you survey? What, what are they? Are they baking in a recession for 2024? Or do they just think, yeah, growth is slowing, but we're still going to grow this year? Well, we, we lived all through 2023 not knowing what the future looked like. So there was a huge constraint on CapEx investment. We undershot our targets. You know, we, we thought we were going to spend 12% on CapEx last year. We spent like 1%. All of that is now carried over into 2024. I think there's some general optimism now. Uh, the softening is still continuing on new orders. The, the fact that the Fed has said, hey, we're at the top of the right cycle is really positive. Mm -hmm. They don't really so much need to know when the first cut comes in. That's not a direct relationship really on manufacturing. The fact that they've telegraphed that we're at the top of the rate cycle was really positive for us. So, you know, things are being realigned. I think, you know, panelist companies are probably putting a stretch plan together for their business plan based on a more accommodative market in 2024. We said in our forecast that 24 would be better than 23. We said that first quarter of 24 would be similar to the last quarter of 23, mm -hmm. just slightly better, but the last six months of 24 will be much better. So hey, I think Tim. we're on that trajectory. This is a this is probably a month, month and a half before I thought it would show up, but it's it's welcome nonetheless. He sounds so jazzed. Um, Tim, <laughs> going back to the um, prices paid for a second, you mentioned commodities. Is that a supply or a demand story at this point? Uh, you know, the utilization is fairly high, uh, but you know, you you think you see a lot more plant capacity going into the system, and I think that's going to happen probably. A lot of this stuff is long lead. It takes three years to you know put a steel plant in, you know, aluminum smelter, uh, plastics chemical plant. It takes about three years to do that. You know, I, I don't think we're going to see any relief on the capacity side till the second half of the year. And, that, and that's what you're on to my biggest concern here. And that is that we may see a resurgence of material price inflation at higher levels than we expected, sooner than we expected as demand comes back. And we don't have right. production capacity expanding fast enough. We, 
We think we're going to go up about 7%, I think, on production capacity in 2024. The question is when. Do you want to do it too early? No, not really. Do you want to do it too late? Well, that's going to cause price growth everywhere. So the timing of that, that that's where you kind yep. of tie in back to when do the rate cuts come into place. That might spur you know more demand. We may or may not have the capacity in place to keep prices down. Hey, I think the biggest issue in 24 is maintaining an acceptable price level. Tim, you're based in Miami, right? Uh, I'm in Jupiter, Florida. Yeah, I've got a huge problem with that. There's no manufacturing in Jupiter, Florida. You should be in like Peoria. What are you doing in well, Jupiter, I'm Florida? Connecticut. What's I'm that? In, I'm in the heart of, of manufacturing technology in Connecticut. Now, you got to give me some relief. <laughs> All right, very good. I, I, that's where manufacturing started in America. Yeah, Vermont, I know. Connecticut. Yep. Absolutely. All right, Tim Fury, uh, good stuff. Appreciate it. Tim Fury, chairman of the Manufacturing Business Survey Institute for Supply Management, Wisconsin, in Jupiter, Florida. Man, it doesn't get much better than that. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk about things that are working and not working. Let's go to Rockwell Automation. So that company is a really great indicator of sort of end user demand. It provides control devices and software for industrial automation. Now, it reported earnings uh, yesterday, and it tumbled the most intraday since 2022 because its fiscal first quarter profit did actually miss estimates. The stock now up by almost 3% today. We are now joined by the CEO, Blake Moret. We're really great to get this perspective. Hey, Blake, what do you think the market took away yesterday uh, from your earnings? Well, I think they did hear the message of continued underlying demand remaining strong, but we had a shipment miss in the quarter. A lot of that was execution, and we look at that as timing for shipments that will come back in the year. You know, we had a very strong growth last year of uh, 17% top line, 28% adjusted EPS. This is a bit of a reset year as we get done shipping off that older backlog that piled up as a result of supply chain shortages and go back to booking and billing incoming new orders. And so we're seeing lower growth in the year with some growing pains, but uh, the underlying demand remains pretty strong. That's kind of where I want to go, Blake. What are your, t tell us and, and our listeners and our viewers, like who your customers are and what are your customers telling you these days? We may be the most pervasive technology in American manufacturing. So everything from automotive and battery manufacturing to warehouse automation, food and beverage, life sciences, uh, energy, both traditional fossil fuel as well as renewables. Across that whole spectrum, our technology, our hardware and our software and our services are pretty prevalent. So when do you know, Blake, if it's still the supply chain issues that you're still working through versus just weaker demand? Like, do you even do you even know when that moment shifts? Well, so we had an encouraging quarter in the demand side in that in Q1. So the quarter mm -hmm. ended uh, in December. We did see double digit sequential growth in orders off of the trough in our fiscal year, uh, our fiscal Q4 last year. And those orders increases have continued into January. So that's a very positive sign. Now, a lot of our distributors and most of our business does go through electrical distributors. They had higher inventory than they wanted 
And we expect in the coming couple of months that that inventory gets to more of a normal level so that their orders to us reflect the strong underlying demand from machine builders and end users. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Like how, how much lead time do you have in your business? What's your order book and kind of how, how, much, how much lead time do you really have? So, so the, the product business, which is the majority of our business, those lead times are typically days and weeks in a normal period. And part of our challenge in Q1 was returning all of our products to those fast lead times. But in a normal um, you know, environment, we get an order and it either gets shipped that day off our distributor shelf or we're able to make it and ship it within days or a few weeks for those products. So are you an early cycle economic read? Is that fair to say? You know, we certainly have exposure early in the cycle, mm -hmm. but the so-called late cycle is also an important part of our business. Um, whether you're talking about the traditional process industries mm -hmm. or life sciences, we've got pretty broad exposure early, mid, and late cycle. Although I have to say, with the supply chain backlog that we had in 2022 and 23, with the distributor overstock that we're working through now, it's hard to pin a particular point in this traditional cycle on this time. Well, also because you're exposed to sort of all the structural changes too, like Infrastructure Act, the CHIPS Act, uh, the IRA. So that's a structural shift, even though you're still cyclical. I can imagine that being quite confusing. So based on where you are and all the different cycles, how are we doing? Like, how's the global economy doing? You know, um, particularly in our home market in the U.S., where we have the largest market share, we see continued strong underlying demand. So we're expecting our orders to be up um, low, you know, low single digits. And uh, we're guided to one point up in terms of organic shipments. But that underlying demand, I think, remains strong. And one of the key indicators for me is continued low unemployment rates in our uh, most important markets. So, uh, Blake, I'm looking at the PGEO function on the Bloomberg terminal, and I can see just by geography, looking at your revenue, again, 60% roughly of your revenue is North America. So give us a sense of kind of North America versus rest of the world. What are you guys seeing? North America is the strongest market. Um, yeah. China has uh, significant problems right now, and uh, Europe um, still dealing with uh, some of their structural issues. A lot of the business we get in Europe is actually for export back to North America from the machine builders over there. But uh, we expect for this year, uh, North America is gonna be the strongest market. And that's good for us because we've got home field advantage. This feels like a US exceptionalism conversation, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like yet again. Um, so if we just go macro them for a minute, if the Fed cuts rates in, in May, what does that do? Like if you're already seeing U.S. Um, hold up pretty well, does that accelerate the economy from where you stand? 
I think that could uh, um, help some of the largest CapEx projects, which you know we get some business from, but we're not as much of a CapEx play as you know some other names in that we're pretty balanced between CapEx as well as OpEx uh, in terms of improvements, additional efficiency in existing facilities as well. So I don't know that interest rates are our biggest indicator. As I said, for the economy, I look at unemployment and um, you know I look at the, uh, the amount of automation investment, both for new greenfields as well as uh, adding efficiency and resilience in existing facilities. Um, Blake, just explain to us kind of what your competitive marketplace looks like. Where are you guys versus your competitors? Who do you compete against and, and how is that changing? So our big competitors are, are mostly the European uh, conglomerates, really. It's uh, Siemens, Schneider, hmm. ABV, um, in certain narrow uh, parts of the market, Honeywell and Emerson here in the U.S., um, we're really, you know, we distinguish ourselves by having a very balanced exposure from discrete applications like automotive to hybrid applications like food and beverage and life sciences to continuous process applications like energy and mining and so on. Hey, Blake, to that point, Honeywell's not having a good day <laughs> after reported earnings, one of the worst performing stocks in the S&P. Siemens Energy, uh, part of Siemens, had just been really hurt by offshore wind uh, here in the U.S. I should say not owned by Siemens, but uh, Siemens owns a stake in Siemens Energy. How, what's your view on the energy green transition build out right mm. now? Are you losing money? Are you making money? What does your order book look like? It's still early innings, uh, but we're seeing good business as a result of energy transition. And I would bucket it in three different ways. <clears throat> I'd look at first the decarbonization of the traditional uh, oil and gas companies. So carbon capture projects. Uh, we've talked about the work we're doing with Occidental and their uh, direct air capture projects, the 1.5 initiative. It's renewables. Uh, and again, uh, we've talked publicly about what we're doing with companies like First Solar in creating you know, PV panels. And then it's the thing that we've been doing for our entire history, and that's driving efficiency across all manufacturing. And those are all good applications for us. You know, There's some relatively nascent uh, areas like hydrogen that are uh, sources of optimism, but you know, I would put them in those three main areas. Hey, Blake, I'm looking at the ANR function on the Bloomberg terminal. It shows me that there are 11 Wall Street analyst buys on your stock, 12 holds and five sells. So pretty mixed across the board. What's the message that you bring to your investors into the marketplace? That the underlying demand rate remains strong, that we really have a unique position among all of those competitors and among the niche competitors. I like the hand we have. And as you know, manufacturing picks up and resets from the period of supply chain shortages, we're in a great spot to accelerate our profitable growth. Before we end here, we have like, I don't know, 90 seconds left. You mentioned jobs quite a few times. We have the jobs data uh, tomorrow. We got initial jobless claims rising the most since November today. What is your assessment of the labor market? Hard to get? You're going to keep labor, paying more? What do you see? You know, I think in manufacturing um, workforce, there's still a lot of unfilled jobs. And 
we think that you know having a skilled workforce is absolutely essential for manufacturers to compete but it's augmented with the kind of technology that we offer so it's really that winning hand of having an enabled and engaged workforce and we do a lot to help with workforce development and it's also given them so-called superpowers with the technology that we offer superpowers sounds great so can you find like here in the u.s can you find people for your type type of work you know um certain jobs uh, it takes longer than in others we're actually helping uh, with uh, workforce development programs that we offer in-house and then provide labor particularly focused towards technician level jobs for manufacturers in America through our hmm. Academy of Advanced Manufacturing. Interesting. All right, Blake, we really appreciate uh, your time here. I know you're busy with the earnings and running a business. Blake Moret, Rockwell Automation. He's the CEO over there. ROK is the uh, ticker for the stock. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Geetha Ranganathan, she is one of the top media analysts on Wall Street, and I found out just today that she also covers Peloton. I'm not sure how that happened, but she's a great analyst when she joins us here. Um, Geetha, are you a Peloton user? I am not, Paul. No. Oh my God! See, this is kind <laughs> of this out, is man. the issue, man. It's Geetha, just, you it's can just come me. riding with me any yeah. any time. <laughs> All right, Geetha, what's going on in the, with with this company here? Is it just a a demand thing, a lack of demand? Yeah, I mean, this is this is really a complete train wreck, Paul. Yep. Uh, I think investors are are really losing patience right now. And actually, if you saw their fiscal second quarter, the quarter that they just reported, the numbers were actually fine, more or less. They reported subscriber growth, uh, which which is a good thing because previous to that, they were losing subscribers because they had a, a product recall. Uh, for, for some of their bike products. They had to completely suspend the production of their treadmill, Tread Plus, and then they've kind of restarted the sales on that as well. Uh, so it was it was a it was definitely a, a decent quarter, I think. But but what really has caused so much of frustration, I think, right now for investors is that there is absolutely no catalyst on the horizon. So the pain points continue to remain pain points. There is no positive revenue growth. In fact, they are projecting a, a decline in revenue. And as you pointed out, this is completely due to the lack of demand. Uh, and along with that, you have this persistent inventory problem, which is causing a huge, huge pressure on the free cash flow of the company. And they continue to burn cash, and they're not mm -hmm. going to be cash flow positive till till the end of uh, fiscal 2024. So, Geetha, I'm going to go with something that Paul said, which I found was super interesting earlier, that you have super loyal users. Why not try and just get more money out of them rather than try and all of a sudden have mass penetration? And they've tried to do that, Alex. So, so to, what's to, the problem their with credit that? Yes, I mean, they, they really face a very, very, so they, they don't have enough of a subscriber base, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's about 3 million subscribers. And yes, they're already charging them a, a good hefty amount. I mean, you're paying for hardware that is pretty pricey, uh, you know, whether it's the Tread Plus or whether it's even even a bike, a, a new bike costs about $1,400, $1,500. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is a pricey, pricey product. And then you have to pay a, a, a monthly fee, right? So, so you are paying about $45 per month, which is that all access subscription fee they are trying new things though they they did realize that you know they might need to to, to your point alex they did realize that they might want to go out and uh, you know appeal to a 
wider base. And so they're trying something called the fitness as a service or a rental program, which is actually taken off. So there is obviously, there are obviously takers out there. It's just not enough to move the needle, unfortunately for them. All right, enough Peloton talk. Let's get to the juicy stuff. Um, let's get to the big media companies that you cover, uh, Geetha. I guess the most topical name these days is Paramount, uh, the former Viacom. Um, Byron Allen, uh, a media mogul of some sort, uh, has made a $14 billion offer. Um, when you talk to your investor clients, is, is this credible? Is this something that could actually happen? I don't think so, Paul. I mean, Byron Allen has been bidding for, for everything uh, in the media space over the past few months, and he has like this long list of, of empty bids, really. Uh, you know, the, the bid on, on its own is not bad at all. It was a 50% premium to Paramount's uh, trading price. So so it definitely makes sense, and it's, I think it's good for investors. The problem is there's absolutely no visibility into how he's going to get that money. So financing is going to be a huge problem. And then, of course, you have the issue of Paramount's debt, or about nearly $16 billion in oh. debt. Uh, and there's, you know, there's like $11 billion in senior notes, which will trigger some change of control provisions and has to be refinanced immediately. So there's there's just a lot of different uh, obstacles there. And, and so I'm not really sure investors are thinking that this bid is going to go through. Does Paramount Plus need a buyout? Like, I feel like these rumors do swirl around a lot. Like, who actually needs to be bought here? Paramount does need a buyout. They do. They really do. Okay. So who <laughs> they, else they, would, they would, would do it then? You, you listed a lot of reasons why Byron Allen won't, but who can? So we've had actually multiple suitors kind of circling these assets. Uh, we have David Ellison, who is the son of, you know, the, the mega billionaire Larry Ellison, who has Skydance Media. He's very interested in getting Paramount Studio. Uh, again, this is an iconic Hollywood studio, has some great IP uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery was also supposedly interested. You have Apollo, which is also potentially interested. Of course, none of them have necessarily come out with a bid. And so Byron Allen kind of doing what he did yesterday really forces other suitors to or other serious suitors to kind of come out and show their cards. So, all right. So let's go to Warner Brothers Discovery. David Zaslov. There's a company with a lot of debt, too. I mean, what's the future? What's the outlook for that company? I mean, I think, Paul, ultimately down the road, it has to be some form of consolidation. I mean, there is no way that so many of these smaller players, whether it's Warner Brothers Discovery, whether it's Paramount, whether it's you know Comcast with NBC, can necessarily function on their own, especially with their streaming businesses. So I'm sure at some point they're going to have to look at ways to kind of consolidate. I'm not necessarily sure it's going to happen right away, just kind of given the regulatory environment and kind of given that whole problem with, with debt and very high leverage. Uh, but it, it will eventually need to happen. So, All right. Paul, does this make you feel like you wish you were still... A banker? Uh, banker yes, for media? because my phone calls would be to private equity. I would ah. go to private equity right here, go out there. They still have good cash flow. They can service the debt. Um, and you can sell pieces, mm. parts at certain times. And that's how you do it. I don't think there's any strategics. But that's just me. Um, we'll see how it goes. Geetha Ranganathan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Geetha, she is the senior media analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence uh, based in Princeton. She also covers Peloton. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.